You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Welcome to our Twitter space. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Stephen Ruder, Digital Communications Officer for the U.S. Institute of Peace. For those who don't know, the United States Institute of Peace is a national, nonpartisan, independent institute founded by Congress and dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential for U.S. and global security. I have a few housekeeping notes as we begin. Uh, this conversation is being recorded. If you speak, your voice and Twitter handle will be part of that recording. The recording will be made available for replay on Twitter, and we will also publish it as part of our USIP events podcast series which is available on our website, usip.org, and on major podcast platforms. We may use the recording on other platforms as well. We have received some questions in advance for this conversation, and we invite you to submit questions for our discussion as you listen. If you'd like to submit a question, please send a direct message to at USIP or reply in the thread for this space. Uh, we'll be moderating speaker access to keep the conversation flowing, so asking questions via DM or reply is the best way to get involved in the discussion. Let's get started. Uh, this space is the first in our series on protecting women's participation in peacebuilding, which we're holding in advance of a live streamed public event on March 8th, International Women's Day. We're also holding them in advance of the deadline for nominating extraordinary women peacebuilders for our Women Building Peace Award. To, nominate, to, to submit a nomination, you'll need to register by March 8th and you can find details about that process on our website. We're also hosting a webinar on how to nominate a woman peace builder you admire, and that webinar is on March 1st. We'll put the registration information for that session in the replies for this space. We are joined today by Andres Martinez-Garcia, Gary Barker, and Kathleen Keenest. Kathleen is USIP's Director for Gender Policy and Strategy. Gary is CEO and co-founder of Promundo US, an international NGO that works to engage men and boys in gender equality and promote healthy masculinities. He is a developmental psychologist and has led research and program development in more than 20 countries, including conflict-affected settings. Andres is a program manager within USIP's Religion and Inclusive Societies program. In this role, he is responsible for USIP's initiative on religious and psychosocial support for displaced trauma survivors in Colombia and Venezuela. He is also a certified psychologist. <clears throat> this series is meant to underscore the importance of protecting and facilitating women's meaningful inclusion in peacebuilding, and this first session will focus on peaceful masculinities, which is an underappreciated aspect of gender and peacebuilding, and a worthy topic to set the stage for these conversations. Let me turn it over now to our speakers on that point. What does masculinity have to do with protecting women's participation in peacebuilding, and why are we talking about protecting participation now at this moment? Why have we organized this series? Kathleen, do you want to say a bit about those two things? Absolutely. Thank you, Stephen, and welcome, everybody. The idea of peaceful masculinities is critical to addressing everything from gender-based violence to violence against women. Uh, women alone can't make change in society. It is an inclusive process. And understanding more about the role men play in producing and reproducing conflict-related issues of violence can help us 
understand better interventions and better ways to solving problems through nonviolence. Thus, really at the Institute of Peace since 2009, with my colleague here, Gary Barker, we have been talking about the other side of gender in order to bring a more equal world, a more gender equal world. This is a dynamic between men, women, and gender and sexual minorities. This is all of us are in this. And so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Gary and Andres, who are experts in the issue of uh, masculinities, particularly looking at masculinities in conflict-affected and peace-building contexts. So I'm going to turn now to Gary to help even define more what is the masculinities uh, study, why are we doing this, and what difference does it make? Gary? Thanks, Kathleen, and thanks to the colleagues at USIP for the invitation to be part of this dialogue, um, particularly on this, you know, the, the days that this is happening as a huge conflict in the world is unfolding and as we think about what that means and the gendered implications of, of what it means as well. You know, um, Pramundo's take on masculinities is that, and what do we mean by that? I think it's a good, you know, it's a good conversation start, which is um, we mean how simply how boys are raised. How do we bring men into the world, male identified individuals into the world thinking that violence is part of who we are or if we push back against that violence? Do we raise our sons to believe in dialogue and see themselves as equal um, to all around them, particularly to women and girls? Masculinities also means the historical power that we have to talk about working in the area of conflict and peace, of who holds power, whether it's the 80% of positions in parliaments around the world that are, that are men, whether it's corporations and media, um, the, you know, the domination of decision-making is often men, um, not all men, but a lot of men are in those, those positions. Um, so it's that combination of power, of harmful norms, but I think it's also important to talk about resistance because we often think of, as we say, toxic masculinities, or we talk about the links between manhood and violence as if all of us are that way. And I think it's important just to say how much resistance there is of men who push back against violence, of men who say, my manhood is not for dominance. Um, and so I think it's talking about that. How do we create a space that says men need to be part of a world, particularly led by feminist activists around the world that say, this is not biologically, essentially who we are as human beings. Women deserve a full voice at the table, particularly talking about the, the peace negotiation processes where it is so key in terms of who makes those decisions and how those decisions are made. And to say that men can also push back and say, there is nothing inherently about being male that says, I must take up arms, I must use violence to resolve situations. And just one comment on the issue of, you know, this topic that we're talking about is women's participation and the violence against them. You know, the last few years with COVID has been a spike in violence against women at the household level. And that is violence carried out by men. And I think we need to label it as such. Um, and we've also seen that violence spill over into the streets. Women, whether activists working on abortion rights in Colombia, and I hope Andres may talk about that, or women working to secure some kind of rights in the context of what's happening in Afghanistan and many other settings, women are on the front lines of that marching and they're on the front lines of receiving violence often from the state and from other actors. 
And that is a role that we, there, there's a space that we need men as allies pushing back against that violence and marching side by side with women who are leading those spaces, not taking over those spaces, but, but marching with them side by side. And so to, to us, masculinities therefore is implied in this conversation, not to take over the conversation, but to show true allyship. Um, Andres, you do a lot of thinking about the mental health aspects of this. And I, you know, Colombia has, has had some very, um, you know, impressive and, and world inspiring um, conversations about how gender fit into uh, the peace negotiations in, the, in, in Colombia's context would love your comments on that. Um, so yeah, let me hand it over to you. Thanks, Gary. Yeah, well, we've known for some quite uh, time now that uh, um, there's a correlation between gender inequality and the occurrence of armed conflict and violence. Um, and therefore, in our research at USIP, we're trying to identify ways in which uh, masculinities can be reframed um, and uh, try to think of ways in which we, we can support, especially migrants that have been affected by violent, by, by violent conflict um, and look into how masculinities often lead people to feel deprived or um, not fitting a role within society. I'm happy to talk about um, a, the uh, intersection between gender and uh, the uh, armed conflict in Colombia, but also the peace process in the country. These uh, areas of uh, concern are particularly amplified right now. Uh, we have this morning, of course, Ukraine and the, the unbelievable uh, takeover uh, by Russia. And of course, within this whole area is how do we continue to protect the peace builders who are asking for a different way to solve problems. And from that perspective, I'm interested in hearing from uh, both Gary and Andres is how we begin to look at it from the side of masculinities. Certainly the protection of women who are participating as well as uh, other groups who are working on addressing discrimination, inequality, and denial of uh, civic space. Gary, Andres? Uh, can you, yeah, can you hear me okay? I think I was breaking up a little bit before, but if that's clear. Yeah, Kathleen, that's a huge and, a, and an important question. And, you know, as we watch what's unfolding in Ukraine, it's, you know, it, it does call us to look at what led us to here, right? What was the combination of repression of civil society in Russia, the clear, you know, connection of of uh, a national, you know, kind of hyper-masculine project that, that Putin has led, our inability in some ways from the West to be able to understand that, um, and perhaps a certain disbelief that if we looked away, it would go away. Um, and, you know, the challenge of, uh, you know, who we don't see at the moment because our eyes are looking at what's happening in Kyiv and, and the rest is the number of activists for peace, for LGBTI rights, 
for women's rights who have been um, arrested, silenced. We can you know, look back over the last few years, just how much that whole package has gone together. Um, and so you know, I, I think the, the lens that we bring of, of what does gender has to have to do with this is to say that, that the creation of those ideas about manhood and the making of that into a national um, cause that Putin has, has driven, and not only there, we could talk about you know, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, we can talk about other countries as well, where this combination of the repression of women's rights, soji rights, um, and other civil society movements have gone hand in hand with a, an increase in, a, in, in the strength of the military, the use of the military to resolve, or the police apparatus to solve internal um, uh, resistance and um, social movements. So I, it, it's hard to find a single, you know, I think there is no easy solution on this, except that we do need to understand how those norms and how those ideas about masculinities are wrapped up in this. Um, and I think in Ukraine, we're gonna have a huge amount of work that comes out of this in terms of whatever peace looks like. Um, and also looking at the gendered trauma that will come out of this. Um, what is happening in the matter of days, these last few days will last, you know, generations of impact um, in terms of what it will mean with very gendered effects of um, men's, you know, often not seeking help and ignoring the trauma that exists. Um, and women often picking up the pieces, more likely to be those who are the refugees and will need services and support at our borders, often with children with them that they are taking care of. All those issues to me um, come to mind as, I, you know, as we're watching what's unfolding in Ukraine. Um, Andres, over to you. Uh, I know that you know, you've done some very thoughtful thinking about how you know, psychological support and the importance of religiosity in that as well. What is, how does that come into this of, as we look at what is, to, what is, of course, going to be a, another refugee crisis, as well as just a humanitarian crisis that's unfolding? Thank you, Gary. Yeah, I would like to frame the conversation about those that are affected by the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, the civilians that are currently suffering and that will continue to suffer for perhaps months, if, if, if not years. Um, I, I heard today that um, all men 18 to 60 year olds are not allowed to leave Ukrainian space. Uh, and this is going to last while there is martial law, which could potentially mean that in the future, if all those men are involved in the fighting, will become former combatants. Uh, one can start thinking about the uh, psychological and societal implications of that. Um, and we also need to keep in mind that there were already 1.5 million internally displaced persons in Ukraine, and that number can increase very rapidly to about 5 million. Um, estimates are, are, are really difficult right now, but uh, you know, one can also see the potential for a humanitarian catastrophe there. Um, there's also reports of um, refugees already crossing the border into other countries. Um, there have been some positive reports about those countries be being very open and assisting those that are migrating. Um, uh, I am hoping that uh, the support that they are being given, uh, the welcome, goes beyond traditional humanitarian assistance and that psychosocial support and mental health is uh, kept at the forefront and is uh, considered a critical and such an important part uh, of, uh, of that assistance. But there are two challenges. 
the first one is that usually uh, gender sensitive psychosocial support refers only to women or that is how it's traditionally understood. Uh, we need to transcend that, that view and understand that men and boys have particular challenges, especially when they are refugees and migrants. And second, that psychosocial support rarely addresses religious beliefs uh, held by displaced persons. And for people who have religious beliefs, um, those beliefs can be a critical opportunity to overcome trauma and other psychosocial um, and psychological effects of, of violence and war. Yeah, I, I want to pick that uh, thread up, Andres, and, and reemphasize uh, in our work at the Institute, we like to say that gender is not another name for women, that all beings are gendered. Uh, likewise, masculinity is not another name for men. Uh, having said that, though, we have some deep bench on the study of masculinities, and I'm interested in knowing more about that here. Gary, your work on uh, the images study, what do we learn about the impact of violence on young men, and how do we find a peaceful masculinity in this equation? Yeah, thanks, um, Kathleen, for that question. I mean, one, we know from doing household sample research in nearly 50 countries, most many times in partnership with UN Women and the UN Population Fund and national governments, um, just how much the men who are more likely to use violence against a female partner, for example, have experienced or witnessed violence growing up. It is perhaps obvious to affirm that violence begets violence. Um, that's not an excuse for any individual man's use of violence against a female partner, but it does help us understand what we call this intergenerational transmission of violence. We see even higher rates of that in conflict settings, that is witnessing, experiencing, being part of, sometimes being part of armed groups, military or others, um, where, yeah, violence has a spiral. Um, that that men witness is traumatizing. And I think for all the reasons that Andres just suggested, we, you know, we often forget that. We somehow think that because men don't often manifest um, some of what we think are the symptoms of trauma, men's depression is often masks, masked as aggression, um, that we don't see that. And I think that is one of the, the key points is to say the harmful childhood experiences of boys and young men is so often what drives their use of violence as adults. And to, you know, to take a lens in that, whether in the context that Andres just mentioned of, of refugee or IDP um, settings is key. Um, some of the work that we've partnered with, both colleagues with uh, USIP in Afghanistan and work that we've done in partnering with a, a group called the Living Peace Institute in DRC has been trying to look at kind of what that understanding of childhood experiences and conflict experiences of trauma means in the lives of men so that we can, um, for their own sake, but also in terms of what it means for their use of violence against women and others in their household. Um, so understanding those links, and I think, you know, I appreciated um, Andres' comments about religiosity. How do we build on the sources of support that are there so that we're also going in with a strengths approach that in any setting we look in, there's a lot of men coping well. There's a lot of men who experience that violence who don't go on to use it. And how do we then take 
that um, kind of positive coping voices of healthy masculinity that exist in any setting and build on those. Yeah, so religion and spirituality can definitely be a very, very powerful tool. I can't emphasize that enough. Um, in our research, uh, we have identified how uh, there is uh, very frequently stigma again against mental health services, particularly in men, um, and particularly men in armed conflicts, uh, which uh, tend to think of uh, asking for that kind of support as associated with weakness. Um, and we have found that religious institutions can help overcome that st stigma and create a safe space where men can discuss those uh, feelings, emotions, and behaviors that are affecting them. Uh, we have also found that uh, religious leaders and the religious belief can uh, help uh, build a more positive idea of masculinity. Uh, there, is, uh, there are some previous experiences here in Colombia and in Venezuela uh, where uh, different denominations have engaged former combatants and uh, armed violence uh, victims uh, in um, resignifying what it means to be a man after, after conflict uh, in a more positive way. And then finally, um, religion can help men build a sense of agency a sense of mobilization towards providing pro uh, protection to the, to the, to the community uh, that they belong to. So um, that is a clear example of how one can reframe what it means to be a man and try to solve problems by solving problems in a way that benefits other members of the community uh, peacefully. So I'm really interested in hearing from both of you about some of these kind of programs that address the idea of peaceful masculinities. I mean, how do we unlearn that kind of violence? How do we help transform these harmful masculinities? Uh, Andres, you've talked about the role that uh, spiritual and religious institutions can play in these settings. Are there other approaches? And I, I know, Gary, you mentioned the Afghan uh, story that uh, was very much uh, part of the peaceful masculinity pilot at USIP. Yeah, and, you know, Kathleen, what was, uh, you know, interesting, but perhaps obvious in, in that work, and we've also carried out the images, the, that's the International Men and Gender Equality Survey, which we also carried out in Afghanistan, um, affirming how much, um, of course, you know, this was carried out pre-Taliban, but of course the effects of the previous Taliban rule, just how much and how prevalent um, harmful repressive ideas about manhood affected the lives of women and girls and, and exceedingly high rates of violence against women, not only because of the Taliban um, and certainly comparable to some other countries in the region. Um, that much, of course, affirmed, but also just how much the Taliban repressed men who dared to speak up for women's rights. Um, and I think that's an issue to think about as well. And yet, you know, the partnership we did with USIP was about engaging young men to be allies specifically in that cause, um, which does cause us to, you know, to look at how much do we need to support women who are on the front lines and are trying now under the Taliban to speak up for their rights and the need to engage men as allies in that work and understanding that um, women are being oppressed and men who would dare to speak up um, in the context of Afghanistan in favor of women's rights are also being oppressed. 
Um, but I think what I, I come away hopeful of just how much those voices will continue to exist. And of course, we've got to figure out ways um, that we can support those voices as we look ahead um, in what's happening in Afghanistan. So two ideas. Uh, the first one is that it's important to include men and boys as well as gender and sexual minorities into psychosocial support services for violent survivors. Um, give them an active role to play in providing those services. And then the second one is that unfortunately, therapeutic uh, approaches, um, uh, I don't think have been tailored enough to address masculinities. So this is a call for those perhaps funding uh, research and doing work on masculinities to think about how we can better uh, build tools that will help uh, provide a therapeutic um, services to, to men that have been either affected by violent conflict or that have themselves been perpetrators of violence. I just want to interrupt for a moment to say that we've received some questions from the audience via direct message to that USIP handle. If others have questions, you can post them in our Q&A thread or you can send us a DM. Uh, the first question you received is about the pandemic. How has the coronavirus pandemic changed gender relations in the home and at the societal level? And what does that mean also for what has the pandemic meant for protecting the participation of women in peace processes? I know Gary mentioned earlier that we've seen the situation get worse during the pandemic for those women peace builders, but how is it shifting things in the home and society as well? I think one of the early indicators that there was concern is in many of these already oppressed uh, societies, uh, safe spaces, uh, online help, uh, and phone, you know, phone help was, uh, all of them were immediately cut off as not essential workers. Uh, to Andre's point, uh, mental health is essential and especially undergoing extreme uh, changes in a society like COVID has brought the world. I think, you know, it challenged everyone in part because of gender roles and the implicit kind of understanding that uh, many societies have that women are the primary caregivers. And as a result, it has compromised many women's ability to work outside the home uh, that coupled with uh, really sometimes unsafe childcare, meaning uh, the possibility of getting COVID uh, has really complicated these uh, emerging gender roles where women are playing a larger economic uh, uh, role in the family. Uh, I'll turn to Gary and Andre for their thoughts on this. Yeah, Kathleen, I think that, you know, the issue that you brought up around caregiving, and we sometimes think, well, what does that have to do with the political activism that we're talking about? But it is precisely that, you know, the daily experiences of households you know, during the, the peak of covid um, 45 countries worth of research that UN Women gathered found that um, women's time use increased by about five hours per week of additional care duties during COVID. Men's also increased, but far less. 
Um, and that time use increase with women already doing on average around the world three times the amount of the care work in our homes. And if you think about, you know, the individual women who do the activism, um, who are part of negotiating and putting out, whether it's blogs or paying attention or meeting to do this kind of frontline activism, that is taking away from the time that they have that's usually already unpaid work um, in terms of their activism work. So that, you know, the kind of the, 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 the household level challenges of women continuing to do the work, let alone um, what has happened in terms of um, economies overall, with particularly women's job losses being um, at the front, the forefront of this, and then all the discussions, you know, many, many repressive regimes use COVID as one more reason um, to claim that they needed to close down freedom of movement, um, the, you know, social media spaces, et cetera. COVID became a fantastic smokescreen, um, a perfect excuse for some despotic leaders um, to continue to repress um, women's leadership and as well as other civil society movements. Um, Andres, over to you. Um, the evidence that we have identified is that, and I don't know if this applies for all countries, but at least in Colombia and some countries in Latin America where, um, especially in uh, some areas of the country, men tend to work outside of the home um, during lockdown has left women um, in a much more vulnerable position where the home is now a, a place where there is significant risk to violence uh, when men are not leaving, especially men that now might, might feel aggravated because of uh, a lack or a, a loss of um, um, ways to earn an income, uh, also stress associated, of course, with, with the pandemic. Um, I am aware that in some countries uh, that dynamic was identified and therefore uh, efforts were put into place so that women could gain access to um, protection outside of their homes since these were no longer safe spaces. We received another question from the listeners um, about the localization of women's rights. They say that um, women in each region require a different level of women's rights advocacy. For example, uh, women in India, they say, fight for the basic right to dignity and freedom from freedom to wear the hijab or not. And uh, whereas in the West, it's often a battle about equal pay for work. Uh, women in the Middle East, Africa and Asia all have dis different necessities, they say. Um, so how how should we think about this localization of women's rights and different needs in different places? And then also maybe our last point, um, what can men do who want to support these women activists and peace builders and human rights activists? What can ordinary men do to support them day to day? Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Well, I mean, we know by most indicators that uh, gender inequality has worsened uh, since 2020 and the onset of the pandemic, uh, it's really exacerbated pre-existing qualities and we are looking at uh, curtailing of women's freedoms really and security worldwide. So I'm trying to look at what we have in common first, uh, but absolutely, I mean, these gender dynamics happen at the local level and uh, sensitivity to that is critical in terms of international policy and even national policies. Uh, I think that uh, another area that uh, 
uh, takes on its own form of uh, issue is the gender digital divide. Uh, we see that as uh, many countries just struggle to get uh, a, a solid and secure internet function. And this kind of uh, divide is going to challenge us. Certainly, uh, we're going to see in the days and possibly weeks ahead, it's going to affect what is going on in Ukraine. We know that this cyber world is a new form of potential discrimination and even harassment. Uh, and we know from talking to our Russian colleagues that uh, intrusive forms of surveillance uh, is going on uh, during uh, under the auspices of COVID checkpoints. Uh, so we have a lot of dynamics to look at. I, I think localization is an important lens, but we also have so much in common globally. Um, I'm interested in uh, Gary and Andre's point about how can men who want to support women's active active roles and their role in peace building, what can they do today? Um, I'll jump in quickly, just looking at time and then hand it over to you, Andres. I mean, I'd, I'd say there's five things men can do to support this. One is to listen to women peacemakers of what they need and what our role can be. That would be the first and foremost one. Second, vote as if our well-being as men depends on what happens to women in our societies. Um, third, march with women, showing up, being in the space, not instead of, not stealing the microphone, but marching with. Um, Fourth, and this comes from listening to women and it's pretty obvious, is do the care work. <laughs> do our portion of the unpaid care work at home so women can be um, in the world the way they deserve to be. And fifth, be part of calling out other men. Um, they're including at times that it may put us at risk, um, but to, to be part of calling out the harm that happens to women by doing our part to call out other men. Um, Andres, over to you. Yes, listen, 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 and then listen some more. Uh, in Spanish, there are two words, oír and escuchar. I would advocate for escuchar. That means active listening, really trying to understand what is being said. Take a back seat uh, sometimes, get used to that. Um, and uh, also use your privilege in a positive way. So if you're in a position of power and you find that you can make decisions that will make the world a more um fair place uh, a more just place for women do that and do that whenever you have the opportunity to to do so um thank you I think we have to wrap up here in just a moment because uh, I know that our speakers have other commitments coming up shortly, but I wanted to ask all of you if you had any one final point that you wanted to make or a final takeaway um, before we wrap up. Thanks so much, Stephen. I like to actually quote uh, the UN Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, who in her recent remarks to the UN Security Council is that unless women's voices, realities and rights are a part of the decisions on peace, 
peace is not sustainable. We must have women involved in all aspects of peace processes. We need to walk the talk now. And we need to know that having said that, women need protection because they are out there and they are being profiled in what seems to be an increasing trend to intimidate uh, women's voices. Thank you, Kathleen. That, yeah, it's an important reminder. I would just, you know, I don't know if there's much to add in a in one sentence, but I, you know, Pramunda's cause and, and my cause personally is to help men see that um, gender equality needs men. And the other side of that is that we as men need gender equality to see ourselves as in this because we have stake in the game in a world that is just and equitable um, not that we're doing this as a favor, not that we're doing this as gender champions or anything. We are doing this because we have a stake, because our well-being and our lives are intertwined with the well-being of women. Um, Andres, over to you. Just a quote from someone who's, who's uh, a lot smarter than I am, uh, and it goes, uh, patriarchal gender relations predispose our societies to war, acting as a driving force to perpetuate war. Thanks. Those are all, I think, really good points to close on. Uh, thanks to everyone for joining this space today. And uh, special thanks to everyone who submitted questions and to our speakers for their time and their thoughtful comments. The recording will be available here on our Twitter account for 30 days, and we'll also be publishing a permanent recording on our website and as an episode of the events at USIP podcast. Please uh, follow our speakers on Twitter. Andres is at and Mart G. Gary's organization is at Promundo underscore US and Kathleen is at Kath Keenest. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.